0: All right. If you have your Bible, please turn today to Romans chapter three. And uh, I, I appreciate you guys being here. I was just noticing we've got a pretty full balcony today. I guess more people wanted to be closer to heaven. Um, just assume that's what you're doing up there. Not, but I'm, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm just. I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep my eyes on you guys up there. All right. Okay. Uh, Romans 3 is where we are today. If you have a Bible, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible, then get one of these black Bibles on the ends of each pew. I believe we are still on page 940 in that pew Bible, Uh, so please follow along as we go. Uh, Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 18 is where we have come to in the book of Romans. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of god before their eyes i mentioned uh, at the, the very beginning of the service that today is reformation day uh, of course more importantly it is the lord's day Uh, It is the first day of the week, the only New Testament holiday uh, when God has given us that Jesus rose from the dead and he set this day apart as a day to commit to him to gather with his people as we're able to do that. But today is also October 31st, so uh, 504 years ago today, on October 31st, 1517, uh, the, the 95 theses were posted to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany by a Roman Catholic monk named Martin Luther. Now, that is not the event that began the Protestant Reformation. It's just sort of the one that we use to mark the beginning of it. But it's interesting that uh, even that event reminds me that the Protestant Reformation is something that can only be attributed to God and to God's grace working through God's Word Uh, What really kicked off the Reformation was not a man or a teaching of man. It was the fact that the Bible began to spread. And as Bibles were being printed with these new things called printing presses, and more people were coming to understand the Word of God, the Word of God took hold of people's hearts. And people began to see that it was different from what was happening within the established church of the time. But as I said, even the fact that Martin Luther uh, contributed so much is, is, is a testament to the fact that this was a work of God alone, because at the time that Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses to the church in Wittenberg, not only uh, was he still in very much in allegiance to the Pope, as he would later testify, and as you can even tell on those theses, he was a lost man. He, he did not even yet believe the gospel. His, his testimony of conversion to Christ, of understanding the Christian, Christian gospel, uh, is that it happened a, a year or two after this. Uh, and so this is something that, that could only have come about by a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, by God's grace, even that lost man was beginning to see, as God had put him in a position of being a professor of Bible <laughs> he was beginning to see, hey, there's some pretty serious differences between what the Bible teaches and what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And so they began to get into this process of looking at the Scriptures. But ultimately, as as the Reformation took hold, what was really taking hold was the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what was taking hold. That gospel that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, that gospel, by the way, you, you, your, your Catholic friends and, and neighbors that we love and care about, they probably are not aware of this, but, uh, but the, the, uh, the Roman Catholic response to that spread of the gospel in the Protestant Reformation was what's called the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent still has its official teachings, its canons that still stand in the Catholic Church That officially say that anyone who believes that gospel that I just described, being saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, that teaching says that we are anathema for saying that, that we are guilty of damnable heresy for believing that gospel. That still stands today as the official teaching of the Catholic Church, even though it's not necessarily emphasized all that often. So, I just have to say that that I am grateful for the Protestant Reformation. We need to be absolutely clear about where we stand and the fact that there is a vast difference between what is taught by some who proclaim Christ and yet don't believe the gospel of Christ, including the Vatican. And there's a big difference between that and what is taught in the Bible, And so what we are doing here together, the reason that we're here is because we stake our eternity on the fact that God's Word alone is our final authority, that we are saved by His grace alone, as the Bible says, by the work of Christ alone. And this happens as a gift of God given to us by faith alone. And it's all for the glory of God alone. That's why we're here. But as we come to this place in Romans we're going to see a passage that reminds us of one of those alones very much. Those, those five things that I just told you, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, uh, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone, we call those the five solas of the Reformation. This one would have to do with what we call sola gracia or grace alone. The reason that we need God's grace alone to save us is because of what we see in this passage that if there were anything besides God's grace to to save us, (laughs) let me put it this way, if we were to trust in anything besides God's grace to save us, we'd be lost. If we had any feeling God's grace can take you this far, and then you get yourself just a little bit farther past the finish line, no, we'd be doomed. We would be absolutely doomed because of what it just said here what it just said, that all, under, uh, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. No one is righteous, not even one. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. Not meaning that man is absolutely as bad as he possibly could be, but that the sin nature that we were born with ever since Adam is something that permeates who we are and extends to every part of who we are such that apart from the grace of God we are hopeless we are hopeless this is the teaching in fact that has been all the way through the book of Romans so far and what we've read especially starting in verse 1 or excuse me verse 18 of chapter 1 all the way up to this point, and is going to continue next week to verse 20, where Paul has been teaching the reason that we need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. He has been explaining over and over in another way and another way and another way, you are doomed apart from faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you live in high society of Greece or if you live as a barbarian off on an island where nobody has ever made contact with you. All mankind are under sin. He showed that about the Gentiles at the end of chapter 1. He's been showing that about the Jewish people from the beginning of chapter 2 all the way to where we are right now. He says, it doesn't matter what kind of family you were born into, what kind of background, whether you are consider yourself to be a child of Abraham by birth or anything else, whether you were born in the church, whether you were born to a hippie pagan family or anything in between. You guys love it when I use the word hippie. There's always giggles when I say that. Guys, it doesn't matter. Everybody is a sinner who must be saved by grace. We must be saved by grace alone. Let's let's look here and let's see what it says. Romans 3 verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Now, the reason he's asking that is because he has just said something after he has spent all of chapter 2 explaining that no The Jewish people are not better off eternally than the Gentiles just by by being Jewish. He has said, but there are some advantages that they have. And the greatest advantage is that they were given the Scriptures. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that is a massive advantage to be able to look and to see the Word of God that God can use to make someone wise unto salvation. But what he's saying here is that even that fact does not put anyone among the Jewish people automatically into the running for heaven any more than anyone else was. There is is a visible people of God, but what he's saying here is that not at all, there is not any advantage whatsoever having to do with salvation by the fact of being born into this family or that family, there is nothing inherent in any human being that gives an advantage about being saved. He says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Let's think about that. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What is he talking about? What does he mean by under sin? Well, he has set up for us here in the book of Romans even in the first first chapter, set up for us this idea that everybody in the world belongs to one of two realms. You are either under sin or you are under grace. That word grace is going to start coming up more and more as the book of Romans comes along. The way that it's put is in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1 is this… He says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It says that there are those who are in the realm of having received the righteousness of God as a gift by faith. But verse 18 of chapter one, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There's the other realm. You can either be in the realm of the righteousness of God by faith, Or you can be in the realm of being under the wrath of God for sin. And what he says right here in chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9, is that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What he's talking about there is the natural state of man. The way that we were born involves what is called original sin or total depravity. It means that human beings, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, have been born guilty of sin. Guilty of Adam's sin and with a sin nature, as we're going to talk about in a minute, positively inclined to evil. Those are the words that are in our own statement of faith here at this church. We have the penalty of sin, we have the power of sin, we have the presence of sin. That's what we are born into. And this is talking about the guilt of sin and the power of sin. All are under sin. The Bible talks about us being slaves to sin by birth. Slaves to sin. Now, some people would look at that and say, no, I'm not a slave to sin. A a few people might say, yeah, I'm addicted to fill in the blank. And they would say, "I, I feel like I'm a slave to it. I just can't get away from it. Well, some people think that. Most people, I don't think, would consider themselves to be slaves to anything. And in fact, here here is what was the complaint that was raised to Jesus after he said that famous line, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said that that would happen if you abide in my word. But you know what? He got a complaint after that. People quote that as something that is really inspirational. But when Jesus said it, he was saying it to an audience of Jewish people who considered themselves already righteous before God. And here was their response. They said, we are Abraham's offspring, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed Here's what Jesus taught. He said, you were born into slavery. You might have felt like you were free. You might have been born into a well-to-do family. You you might have been spoiled as a child. You might have been allowed to run around and to do whatever you want to. You, You might have all the advantages in the world. You might be the boss at your job, and you don't have to answer to anybody. You might be in charge in every realm of your life. You might even think to yourself, I am a pretty good person. I think I'm handling this well. But what Jesus says is if you have not been set free by the Son of God, Jesus, then you are enslaved. You're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to the stuff that you want to do, the stuff that you think makes you free because you can do it. And there don't seem to be any consequences. This is the way that the world defines freedom. When the world talks about freedom and liberty, they're talking about license. They're talking about, well, I can carry out the desires of my flesh without consequence. That is freedom. That's not freedom. That is slavery. That's slavery to sin. And even those who, who on the outside, were restraining their desires... Even those on the outside wanted to appear religious and good. Jesus knew their hearts, and he said, I know that on the inside, in your heart, you're a slave to sin. The Bible tells us here this applies to everybody. If you've not come to faith in Jesus today, you are today under sin, says the Bible. A slave to it. Guilty of it. If you are someone who has come to faith in Christ, you need to have a level of humility, a a lot of humility. (laughs) We need to be humble knowing that we're not saved because we were good. All of us were under sin. All of us were held captive by its power. We could not break those chains. We were under it. When we came in contact with the law, another way that the Bible talks about, and he's going to talk about in the coming verses next week, that that when we are enslaved to sin, we come in contact with God's law, and it crushes us. We are under sin, under the law, crushed by it. It just comes up against us because it shows that we are not what it says. We are sinners against God. And guys, if, if you are apart from Christ, you need to be set free. And the only way you can be set free is by the Son, by, by Jesus, the Christ, who died for our sins and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I do want to clarify, when we're talking about being enslaved to sin, when we're talking about, about sin in general and being under sin, as it says here, what is sin? Because sometimes this is misunderstood. Sometimes people will say, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I don't think that I sin all the time. Here's what sin is. The way it's defined in the Baptist Catechism is that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Or want there means lack. Sin sin is any lack of conformity to the law of God. That means when God tells you in the scriptures, even if you've never read that part, when God says what to do, when we don't conform to that, that is sin against God. Or any transgression of it, when, when God says what to do, and we don't do it, that is sin against God. And you want to know, well, am I, am I guilty of sin? Well, here, here is the way that Jesus described sin, and I've told you this many times, and part of the reason I tell you this many times is because I want you to be able to repeat this to people that you are witnessing to who don't think that they need salvation because they think that they're good people. Jesus says, here is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said that that is the summary of all the law and the prophets, of the whole law of God. Some would look at that and they would say, well, that's easy. All I have to do is feel love. Well, no, it's not easy. Because do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all the time? even for us who know Christ, even for you who have been walking faithfully with Jesus for 80 years or however long it's been, we, we, we come against that standard and it shows us, oh, I'm still a sinner. I'm still in need of the grace of Jesus. Now again, you know, you're also a saint if you're in Christ. And love your neighbor as yourself some would say, well, of course I love my, I'm a really nice guy. I love my neighbor. I do nice things for my neighbors. Well, <laughs> you know what people usually mean by that? When they talk, when you think about loving your neighbor, you think about somebody who is who's like just distant enough from you for it to be okay, right? It, it, you, don't, you don't think about the people that God might want you to love that you've never met before, that you might just come across like the Samaritan did on that road, on that roadside. And you don't think about the people who are really, really close to you either, right? Like the people that you were trapped in your house with for several weeks when we had lockdowns, right? And you think to yourself, well, of course I love my neighbor as myself, but I just can't help myself from screaming at these people in my house. That's not my neighbor though. My neighbor is the one who lives next door where we can put a fence up Here's what I'm trying to get, get at. All right, We need Jesus. Any standard by which we try to prove that we are not under sin is going to fail. But guys, for us who have been redeemed by Christ, we are no longer under its penalty. We are no longer slaves. We are no longer under its power. And as God works on us, he will work on the presence of sin in our life. That's called sanctification as he conforms us to the image of Christ. And one day we're going to be in heaven. The presence of sin is going to be gone altogether. You won't even want to sin. Even when people stand up at your funeral and tell funny stories about sinning with you, you will not laugh at them from heaven. You will not want to do those things. You will look at the face of Jesus and you will love holiness because you love Christ. But if you're not in Christ, no matter how good you consider yourself, Jew, Greek, born into this church, grew up in church, grew up somewhere else, whatever else it is, all are under sin. And there's some implications of that. Some implications of that. here's what you need to know is, is that this applies to everybody. He says all, Jews and Greeks. That means every race of mankind and everybody in it was born under sin. That includes people who do very good works. That includes people where the world would say these are the good people. It includes them. This includes people who do all of the religious things that you're supposed to do. This includes people who do all of the acts of devotion that you're supposed to do. This includes people who try to make amends for their past sins, whether they do those to people or to God. Here is what Jesus said about the people who were trying the hardest in the world to live righteously apart from faith. Those people were called the scribes and the Pharisees. And on the outside, they looked very good, They were considered to be the best people, the people to be followed. But Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that in their hearts they did not have faith, that their allegiance was not to God but to Satan. Here's what he said to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is driving it home to them. He's driving it home to us. All are under sin. There is no one righteous, as he says next. Now, what Paul does next in Romans 3 is Paul lays this out as he has spent a chapter and a half almost now uh, telling the Jewish people, who wanted to object that maybe they don't need the gospel because they were born as children of Abraham. Maybe they don't need to trust in Jesus. Maybe they have a leg up on salvation by their birth, by their circumcision, by their possession of the law, by all of these things. He, he has told them, no, you are under sin. You must be saved. You must be born again is how I would summarize that. That's how Jesus put it. But he, he is now going to take their own scriptures the Hebrew Scriptures, the Word of God, the oracles of God with which they were entrusted from the Old Testament, and he's just going to lay out a series of Bible verses for them that show this is what God has said all along. It's not a new teaching that man is born under sin, that man is hopeless, Jew or Gentile, apart from the grace of God. So he goes through all of these verses. Let me just tell you where these come from as we go to verses 10 through 18. In verses 10 uh, through 12, it says that none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So there he is quoting mainly from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which are almost identically worded. And then he goes on in verse 13, and he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. He's quoting there from Psalm 5-9. And then he says, The venom of asps, or snakes, is under their lips. That's from Psalm 140, verse 3. He says, Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, in verse 14. And that comes from Psalm 10, verse 7. And then he goes and he quotes uh, for three verses in a row. He quotes from Isaiah 59 verses 7 and 8. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And then finally, he tops it off in verse 18 by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes, which is a quote from Psalm 36, verse 1. So Paul is not just taking one passage of Scripture here. He is saying, look all over your Bibles, and you will see that God has said this all along. This is not a new teaching. It is not as though since Jesus came, now you must have faith in order to be saved. It has been the case all along. Even among the children of Abraham, even among those who were the physical, earthly people of God, individuals must be saved by God's grace alone through faith alone. They must have the work of God to give them a new heart in order to have eternal life in order to be set free from sin and to be a child of God, no longer under God's wrath, but under God's gift of righteousness. Here's what he says in verse 10, that no one is righteous. None is righteous, no, not one. Another way you could translate this would be the righteous one does not exist. The man who is righteous does not exist not one. I want to ask this. Whose life will be found righteous on the day of judgment before God? Who will be found innocent and not guilty? Well, the answer is no one except for Christ and those who have Christ's righteous life counted as ours by faith. Do you know you will not stand in the day of judgment on the basis of your righteous life? Because you don't have it. We are lawbreakers. There is not a righteous one. There is not one. But when you trust in Jesus, what it says to us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He took our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He gave us his righteousness. Jesus is the one, the only one, who lived a law-keeping life before God, a righteous life before God. And when you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus' righteous life is counted as yours, so that when you stand at the day of judgment, There's not going to be anything for you to say about what kind of life you lived. It's going to be the Christ that you trusted in that matters. It's by him alone that we'll be counted as righteous. But when we're talking about our own lives, human beings, it says here, the righteous one does not exist. No one is righteous, not one. Did you know that that counts Abraham? That counts Enoch, who didn't even die, who just walked with God, or Elijah, who did the same thing? Counts Moses, counts David, accounts Peter and all the other apostles, it counts Paul himself. Boy, you think about Paul, who God is using to write this. Seems like such a righteous guy, but do you understand what he came out of? He came out of a background of self righteousness, trained as a Pharisee who thought that he was so zealous for God that he was willing to follow anyone, or willing to kill anyone who would follow after Christ. There is none who is righteous, not one. If you, you, you think to yourself, well, you know what, I, I don't know if I can jump very far, but there's some people in the world who can jump really far, and if, if we're having a, a, a long jumping contest, then we're gonna be really impressed at the people who are the Olympic long jumpers, especially the gold medalist, how far can they jump? It's, it's amazing. But then if you, 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 you were to say, well, here's what we're going to jump over. It's the Grand Canyon. Where, where, is those, where are those Olympic gold medalist long jumpers going to go? They're, 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 I mean, they're going to make it, you know, 0.003% of the way across before they drop. If we think to ourselves, well, let's look around and see who among us is righteous, we are discounting God. God is the righteous one. Christ is the righteous one. We start to think, well, who is righteous among us? We don't understand. Now, there's a grand canyon of righteousness. The old preacher uh, Donald Barnhouse, he, he told an illustration about this verse from, uh, from a long time ago when he learned how to fly uh, an airplane airplane. He said that the first airplane flight that he took was in an old biplane where you uh, you know you can look out the edge and see what's down below and uh, and that's a, I, I got to ride in one of those one time it's a really fun experience but he said that he took off from this air airstrip in Princeton and they they climbed up about two thousand feet in the air and they flew over Trenton and Barnhouse was familiar with Trenton he felt like Trenton was the place with the tall buildings in his life. And uh, buildings at that point, probably about 10 stories tall. But he he said he looked down on Trenton, and the whole place just looked flat. As he had walked around the city before and looked up and seen, wow, that building is so high up. When he got thousands of feet in the air in an airplane, it didn't matter anymore. It's just a flat town. And you know what we have when we start to think, well, I can be righteous before God. We've got that street level view where we say, okay, well, there's this building, there's this building, which one's a little higher, which, one, which person is a little better, which person is doing good works, and which person is religious, which person is helping his neighbor, which person is, is treating his wife well, and all these things. And we don't want to discount the, those things. We want people to do those things. But when, when we start to think, well, that's going to make me count as righteous before God, we're not understanding God is not down at the street level of Trenton. God is thousands of feet. God is not just thousands of feet up. God is looking down from heaven. And he says, he declares about us, and we need to know this, there is none righteous. Not one. Not even one. Then he goes on in verse 11 and he says, no one understands. First part of verse 11. He, he says here, this, this lack of righteousness, this lack of original righteousness which we lost at the fall, it doesn't just affect what you do. It affects how you think. It affects your understanding. This is part of why we call it, 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 doctrinally, we call it total depravity. Because this depravity is not just something that affects this part of you or that part of you or this thing or that thing. It permeates the whole thing. All right? All right. It is is staining and it affects how you think. And you know what it takes for somebody to come to an understanding of the truth of Jesus? It takes a miracle. That's the only thing that can happen for us to understand rightly the gospel is a miracle of God, a work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the way it's put in Jeremiah 4.22. He says, For my people are foolish. They know me not, They are stupid children. That's what God said. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they do not know. He's saying there is no one who understands. Jesus put it this way. He said, seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never understand perceive. Mm. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, that you can be skilled in your knowledge of the words of Scripture, but an ignoramus as regards its truth. I love that uh, people other than me use these words, stick, stupid and ignoramus. <laughs> but this is the case. That darkened unrighteousness, it even affects our thinking. Why is it that so many of the smartest people in the world can have a Bible handed to them and just don't see the plain truth? Even some of those smartest people in the world who literally devote their lives to studying the Bible and are members of places like the Society of Biblical Literature who meet together to discuss all sorts of things having to do with ancient Near Eastern studies, the Hebrew language, customs of those days, and they can come together and say, but none of this is true, and not believe. It's it's depressing. It says in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. How does that change? How is it overcome? As I said, as a gift, as a miracle given from God. 1 John 5, 20, it says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Only the Son of God can give Understanding, the genuine understanding of the gospel. Just as it says that Jesus did for his disciples after he had risen from the dead, it says in Luke 24, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Ah, it's just beautiful. God can do that. God can do that. God loves to do that for those who the world considers unwise. He says in in 1 Corinthians 1 uh, that he chose the things that are not to put to shame the things that are. He chose the the ones who are not wise according to worldly standards. He says, not many of you, that's us, church, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. But he did it to shame the wise. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Hmm. amazing what god can do but apart from that miraculous work of god says right here no one understands it's not as though there is this group of people out there who who just has a perfect grasp of the gospel and is just deciding will i accept it or not it says that that understanding does not exist apart from a miraculous intervention of god And then he says in verse 11b, no one seeks for God. The way you could translate this is there is no such thing as the seeker of God. He does not exist. That person out there who you would think to yourself, well, maybe they're just kind of righteous. Maybe there are just people out there who, who would seek after God, who are seeking after God, and, and maybe God will just, just let them go to heaven because they kind of, they, they, you know, they really want to find God even if nobody ever told them the gospel. It says right here, there is no such thing as that person. No one seeks for God. Here's, here's the way that Jesus put it, John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There is not this great group of seekers out there. This was something several years ago. There was what was called the the seeker-sensitive movement within churches, which was it's still around in different forms. It had been around before that in different forms as well. But the idea was, let's find the lost people in the community who are seeking God, and let's orient our church toward them. The Bible here says, there is no such thing. Now, there might be people that God is working on their hearts, that God is preparing them through their circumstances, that God is drawing to himself like a fish being drawn in on the line. We need to be aware of that. We need to praise God when we see that. We need to share the gospel with zeal when we see things going on that maybe God's drawing. Yeah, absolutely. But when we start to think to ourselves, well, there is this group of people, this group of seekers out there. God says, no, there's not. No one seeks for God. No one does. And no one can come to God unless the Father draws him. And if the Father does draw him, Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. It's no one seeking who will not come, and the only reason anybody seeks is because God has given them grace. If God hasn't given grace, it says in Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is no one who can come to God whose mind is set on the flesh. Uh, I, I've, said bef- I've said, I think once before, uh, I've, I've said this, I'm going to just say it again, all right? Uh, if you were thinking about the ways that people could come to Jesus um, as, as though you were going to get out of bed, right? Or, or the, the call to come to Jesus as a call for somebody in bed to get up, right? There, there's a few different ways of looking at that, a few different theological understandings. And one way of looking at that that's, that's pretty common out there is to say, well, it would be kind of like if that person is just lying there in bed, awake, perfectly able to stay in bed, perfectly able to get up out of bed, and they just have to decide, will I, will I obey this call to get up out of bed or will I stay here? That is a heresy called Pelagianism. If you think to yourself, well, people can just simply decide to follow Jesus or not to. People can decide to go this way or that way. That is the ancient heresy of Pelagianism. We do not have that. There is no seeker of God. There is no one who is just morally good or morally neutral to be able to choose this way or that way. That's heresy. A little bit less heretical, but still pretty bad, is what we call semi-Pelagianism. And that would be, if you were to say that the, the call to get out of bed would be like saying to somebody who's really, really sleepy in bed, please get up. And boy, they really just have that tug of sleep all over them. They just really, really want to stay, but they can fight through it and they can get up and they can overcome and they can, they can get out of bed. That would be like saying, well, we have that tug of sin that it just really pulls at us, but we can still just, by our will, turn to Christ. Well, as I said, that's a little less heretical, but it's still pretty bad, and it's not what the Bible teaches. And then there's something that's a little less heretical than that, and I would say probably not even heretical, but still bad and not what the Bible teaches, which is what's called Arminianism. Arminianism would look at that call to get up and say, "Well, that is a that is a dying person in that bed. And they're not going to be able to get up unless we give them the medicine of the gospel." And and if we give them the medicine of the gospel, then they'll be able to take that medicine and get well and get up. But that's not what it says here. That's not what it says here. That's not the way that this is described. It says, it says, it doesn't say that if God gives someone the medicine that they might choose him or might not, and he might raise them up on the last day and he might not. That's a John 6, 44 says, no, I will raise him up on the last day. So the problem with that is, is saying, well, if you give somebody the gospel and they, they were dead in their sins, you know, they were going to die. They were sickly unto death, but you give them the cure and they can decide whether to take it or not. It's just not the way the Bible describes it. If we were left to decide whether to take the cure to our deadly sickness of sin or not, you know what it says? No one seeks God. Nobody would take it. If you were left up to your free will, you would die in your sins and suffer eternally under the penalty of God's wrath in hell. That's where our free will would take us. That's what this is teaching right here. Our depravity is so total that if we were left up to our free will, we would all be doomed. It it would be like going to the animal shelter and opening the door for all the cats and saying, I will see which one chooses to come to my house. It's not going to happen. Actually, that's more likely to happen than a sinner choosing to come to God. It says here, no one does good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one is righteous. It takes a miracle. Here is, here is the truth of the Bible. Here's what the Bible says about it. If the call to come to Jesus were a call to get out of bed, we prayed from this earlier, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Sometimes that's called Reformed theology. Sometimes it's called Calvinism. I just call it the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches. You weren't lying in bed awake, thinking, Will I get up or not? You weren't lying in bed groggy, having to fight the urge to get up and come to Jesus. You weren't even lying in bed dying and given the cure and having to decide, will I take this or will I not? You were dead. It says you were dead. You don't get up if you're dead. Unless Jesus calls to the dead man in the grave and says, Lazarus, arise, and makes it happen. If you have come to faith in Jesus, you're not exempt from this passage, but God has done a miracle upon you who were not righteous, did not understand, would not seek God. He has done the miracle, as he put it in Matthew 11, of revealing these things to the little children, of, of being the son who chooses to reveal the father to us, of, of the father choosing to draw us so that he will raise us up on the last day. We were totally depraved. You see, you see why we can only be saved by grace? If it were anything other than the full 100% grace of God, if coming to Jesus had to do anything with the kind of person that we were, including is he the kind of person who would believe, if it had anything at all to do with that, then we would have a ground of boasting in ourselves. But as it is, there is no possibility of boasting. This is a work of God alone, done on dead men who would not, under any circumstances, choose God. We were enslaved to sin. We were dead in our trespasses. But God, because of the great love with which he loved us, had mercy and made us alive together with Christ. Oh, I love it. I love it. Somebody's going to have to stop me soon. Here's what it says after that. No one seeks for God. He says, all have turned aside, verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. He says, he, "Here is." he's going on. He's describing this, this depravity more and more. They have become worthless. Oh. He doesn't say, well, they're still pretty good. No, he says that, that you're ruined by sin. Sometimes in our own minds we have this idea, like, I've got, I got my bad things over here and I've got my good things over here, and there's a wall in the middle. You know, almost, I don't know if you've ever seen one of those aquariums. It's like a two-sided aquarium, and it's got the glass right up the middle that's sealed off, so you've you really got two tanks in one, and this kind of fish over here, and this kind of fish over here. That's sometimes how we think of our, we've got our good deeds and our bad deeds, and I, I really want to fill up the good side of the tank, and I really want to empty out the bad side of the tank. Well, what we have here is we thought there was a wall in the middle, but it is not, And any ounce of sin has completely polluted the whole thing. You put a drop of poison on one side of that aquarium, it's not going to stay over there. You'll have to have a good side still. It's going to kill the whole thing. And that's what it says about sinful man from birth. Our nature from birth is that together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jesus said no one is good except God alone. Isaiah says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Stained by sin, even our good things are stained. Why is that? Romans 14 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It is sin. As I said a few weeks ago, it's if you think you're good, but you don't have faith in Jesus, you are an enemy agent. Like Robert Hansen working for the Soviets in the middle of the FBI, no matter how good his work for the FBI was, his allegiance was to the wrong thing. Every bit of it was tainted. If you think you are good without faith in Jesus, your allegiance is to the wrong thing, and every bit of it is tainted. It says that we are positively, uh, this is number six in my outline, that we're positively inclined to evil, which is words that are drawn out of our own statement of faith here. The New Hampshire Confession of 1853, the second edition of that confession. Here's what it says. And I want you to listen to the body parts that he lists. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. You hear that? He's not just saying, these are good people who just happen to slip up and do some bad things. He, he, he talks here, and he's quoting from Isaiah, but, but it has to do with the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. He says, well, what are they doing with their mouths? They are deceiving. Their throat is an open grave. And then it has to do with the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. But do you see what the problem is here? problem is with who the people are. It's not just that they did something. He said there's a problem with their throats. There's a problem with their tongues. There's a problem with their lips. There's a problem with their mouths. There's a problem with their feet. He's saying mankind does not become sinful upon the point of committing a sin. Mankind is sinful in who he is his mouth, his lips, his feet, his heart, everything in between. We come into this world as sinners. And the reason that we choose to sin is because we were already sinners in our very nature, in ourselves. If you've been deceived by the world into thinking that you're going to achieve some kind of redemption through a process of self-discovery and self-expression... You need to know that the self that you're going to find, no matter how well the world would affirm it, is a sinful self. It's a self with a throat that is an open grave. It it is a self that has the venom of snakes under its lips. It's a self that has a mouth full of curses. It's a self that has feet that are swift to shed blood to get their way, trampling over whoever might be in their path. Guys, we must be born again. There is no other way. We must be given a new nature and a new heart by the power of the Holy Spirit because it's just built into who we are that we are against God. He says finally in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes and this could be the summary of the whole thing. The summary of the whole thing, that is, as he said back in verse 18 of chapter 1, that there is ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not just the unrighteous outward acts. It is the ungodly heart that is not focused upon God as Lord. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is a breaking of the first commandment that comes before the breaking of all the other commandments, where God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And it's as a result of that that all these other things happen, but we are born in that situation. It gets back to the root of the problem, as he said in 121. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Guys, this is a dark view of mankind. And some look at the Bible, some look at churches like ours that preach what the Bible says about this topic and say, well, that is just too negative. That We, we want to have a positive view of mankind. We want to believe that people are naturally good. Well, you can believe that all you want, but it's not true. We want to know what's true. We are not naturally good, trying to self-actualize and bring out the good in ourselves. What, we are doomed. There is none righteous. You are hopeless apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus. But guys, I have good news for you. This good news is coming. It's coming in verse 21. It's coming for most of the rest of the book of Romans, but I want to read it to you from Romans 5, verse 6. The good news is that God has not looked on us and decided whether or not to save us on the basis of whether we were good, whether we deserved it, Here's the good news, for while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You hear that? He died for the ungodly. You need to know that you were ungodly in order to embrace Jesus's death for you so that you can be saved. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that amazing? Still sinners, and Christ died for us. That's what our eternity is based on, not on ourselves. Guys, I hope that this gives you a freedom, a relief, that there is nothing that you can do to be righteous before God except that Christ gives the free gift of righteousness to the ungodly. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that Jesus has died for us while we were still ungodly, still sinners. I pray that you would strike down any bit of pride that any of us have. I pray that you would strike down misunderstandings about the nature of man or the nature of salvation, but I pray that you would simply Give us the cross of Christ to cling to, the person of Christ who is our wisdom and our righteousness. God, I pray that today that you might even overcome the the misunderstandings, the unrighteousness, the ungodliness that may be in, in various people's hearts. And I pray that you would grant new hearts to look to Jesus and be saved. God, I pray for us who are in Christ. I pray that you would continue to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you that you've saved us out of the state that's been described here. And thank you that you're sanctifying us to make us more like Christ. And thank you that our salvation does not depend on us, but on the righteousness of Jesus. Help us to live in that righteousness. Help us to walk by faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.